Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. If you were to look out from the top of any tower in uptown, midtown, or downtown Toronto, there's a good chance you'd spot more than one building designed by the IBI Group, one of the world's largest architectural and engineering firms based right here in Toronto. IBI Group is a giant in Toronto's architecture, design, and engineering community, and has played a significant role in designing so many of the spaces where Torontonians live, work, and play, and the critical infrastructure that stitches our city together. With 60 offices around the world and a slew of real estate-related design and engineering services, IBI Group is a global success story whose projects reach far and wide across many continents. To talk about IBI's Toronto roots and its success on the international stage, I'm joined by Mansour Kazaruni, the company's global director of buildings. With over 25 years of experience, Mansour has a significant portfolio of projects completed or underway across Canada and overseas. He is also a past ULI advisory board member, a member of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, and he has participated on various municipal urban design advisory panels, including ones at the cities of Mississauga, Markham, and Vaughan. So with that, Mansour, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So before we get into talking about the IBI group, I'm curious to learn more about your formative years, uh, where you grew up, where you studied architecture, and how your experience living and working abroad shaped the way you think about design and your overall approach to architecture. Okay. Um, well, I was, uh, I was born uh, uh, 12,500 kilometers away in Mumbai, India. Okay. Uh, where I pursued my early studies in architecture uh, with a five-year kind of professional diploma. And I then followed that uh, with a two-year master's degree in, in architecture at Washington University in St. Louis, which I felt that I just needed to round off my education. And, uh, and frankly, I enjoyed it because I thought that... Um, uh, the, the type of issues that we confronted um, in academia in India versus in the U.S. were quite different mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and really felt uh, better prepared to confront the profession uh, following that seven-year stint. Um, I graduated in 91, which wasn't exactly the best time mm-hmm. to, uh, to graduate from any profession in the U.S., uh, where uh, where there was uh, quite the recession underway. I, I remember. Uh, and uh, so I did a brief stint at HOK. They were headquartered in, uh, in uh, St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly thereafter, I took off for the Middle East where I heard there was a, a construction boom underway. And I, I landed in Abu Dhabi and, and got to work over there. Uh, Ended up staying in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai for uh, most of the 90s, where I worked on some very, very exciting projects with the Canadian firm, uh, projects such as the iconic Emirates Towers uh, and uh, very exciting times. I was, you know, 
young kid just out of school designing the eighth tallest building in the world, <laughs> uh, hotels and office buildings and residential towers, and uh, it was very exciting. So we ended up living uh, there uh, through most of the 90s. Um, that was you and your family. Well, that's where my wife and I started our married life. That's where our first daughter was born. And it was really after she was born that we decided to move to Toronto and make it our home. So we moved here in the late 90s. But how did Toronto uh, emerge as a place to come? I and mean, This is the first time you're mentioning <laughs> it. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, there were two compelling reasons. Firstly, I had... Uh, uh, I had worked for most of my career at a Canadian firm until then, and so I was very familiar with Canadian design standards, and I was surrounded by Canadian colleagues in the Middle East. So there was a sense of familiarity there professionally. Um, and then uh, we visited Canada prior to moving here um, in the late 90s, and I was super impressed by Toronto as a city. You know, the the diversity here was uh, was quite evident. Uh, the growth potential was just staring at you. Mm -hmm. And uh, most importantly, my wife and I found out that we had more family here than anywhere else in the world. Oh. So we thought it would be a great place to raise our family am among, you know, family. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, it, it became an easy choice. So what did you think of Toronto architecture when you came here? What was your impression of the Toronto architecture scene and... and the local development industry. Uh, I think it was uh, it was in its uh, its kind of very early stages. It uh, it was just kind of beginning to evolve. Uh, I remember in the late nineties, um, yeah, you know, City Place was just starting to take off. We had just uh, heard about being uh, commissioned to do the first two towers, and they were going to be based on this kind of Vancouver model mm -hmm. of of you know tower and and podium the point tower typology had had just kind of started to surface in Toronto so uh, uh, very very early stages I would say I see so you saw a lot of potential um, but I, I guess what I'm asking is whether whether you saw Toronto in its infancy compared to some of the other places you had already worked uh, uh, yes and no. I think uh, I think that uh, Dubai was was very much in its infancy. You know, when we did the Emirates Towers in Dubai, uh, that in my mind really opened the floodgates for what uh, Dubai ended up becoming. Hmm. Uh, I always say it was a pretty small town when I lived there. Hmm. Uh, you know, the the Emirates Towers were the first. Uh, two uh, truly tall towers that were done in Dubai, and and they were completed in the late 90s, and it was in the early 2000s that we saw this kind of uh, this huge array of development and tall buildings starting to uh, to proliferate in Dubai. Mm -hmm. So that was in its infancy as well, mm. and, uh, and but coming here to Toronto, uh, it was uh, a different kind of development. And uh, it was prompted by, um, uh, you know, what I've called the perfect storm for the last 20 years. Uh, there was this kind of demand. There was migration. Uh, there was uh, a need for housing. There was uh, a lot of development potential. 
I mean, I look at the South Core today mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's just incredible to watch that transformation that's taken place in two short decades. And for those who don't who aren't familiar with the South Core, that's the area just south of the uh, Union Station, the rail tracks. That's right. Um, and, and obviously uh, down to the lake. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, it's kind of, you know, uh, Scotiabank Arena to uh, Spadina kind of mm -hmm. thing, ma maximum. Even if you were to push it that far, yeah. you're, you're already into city place at that point. Mm -hmm. But that area was, you know, there was nothing there. N neither was there anything in in the city place lands there was mm -hmm. a golf course there right <laughs> and and look at it today it's it's actually amazing to to uh, uh, both witness and participate in that in that transformation okay well let's talk a little bit then about IBI group as a whole what's the the size of IBI group and and the kind of projects that you take on Okay, so IBI was uh, founded in uh, 1974 in Toronto. Uh, we actually celebrated our 45th anniversary in November last year. And uh, the original founders were a transportation engineer, Neil Irwin, and an architect, Philip Beinhacker. Uh, and uh, the original IBI was uh, Irwin Beinhacker Incorporated. And so um, that, that's, that, that's where this, the firm really started. Um, uh, and uh, in the early to mid-90s, uh, we actually did the master plan for the railway lands that reshaped, uh, frankly, a big part of the GTA okay. and uh, delivered our first uh, traffic management system in the late 80s. Uh, in the 90s, uh, IBI began its work on the King Liberty master plan. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you can just envision that, uh, you know, basically west of Spadina, right through Liberty Village, that was all master planned by IBI. Uh, and um, in, in 2000, IBI actually made its first acquisition uh, of an Ottawa-based architecture practice called Marie and Marie and went public in 2004 as a publicly traded company under the symbol IBG on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, and that led to a spate of acquisitions which saw a very rapid kind of period of growth in the 2000s. Uh, and, and in 2008, IBI acquired Page & Steel. Mm. Uh, that's actually where I came from. Right. I started my life in Toronto at Page & Steel, uh, where I, uh, I grew to become a partner, and, uh, and uh, we, were, uh, we were acquired by IBI in 2008. And there were other acquisitions of well-known Toronto firms at that same time, including Robbie Young & Wright, mm -hmm. uh, Giffels. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it was kind of this coming together of, uh, of firms and... A uh, lot of rapid growth. I think we were up to 3,000 people at that time. So yeah, one of the most ambitious trajectories for architectural and engineering firm. Very much so. And But uh, with that rapid growth came a recognition to sort of regroup and reorganize. So uh, uh, in 2013, Scott Stewart was appointed as the CEO and David Tom as the president of IBI. Um 
and there were a, there were a bunch of uh, kind of changes that that occurred at that time that help us helped us get better organized as a as a global firm and uh in 2015 uh we were uh appointed as co-lead of the crosslinks consortium uh and began work on the eglinton crosstown lrt mm-hmm. uh and finally in 2018 uh, we launched our uh, Smarter Urban Futures uh, strategic plan uh, that uh, focused on uh, technology and kind of a strengthened product offering. Hmm. So currently we are um, uh, 2,800 professionals in 60 plus uh, offices around the world. Uh, we are the largest Canadian architectural firm we're the sixth largest uh, architectural firm in the world uh, as per the World Architecture 100 uh, 2020 rankings. Uh, we're in the top 50 engineering firms in the US. Uh, our headquarters is right here in Toronto. We collaborate on architecture, interior design, landscape, planning, placemaking, um, systems and technology projects. Uh, we do uh, high-rise residential, we do hotels, uh, transit systems, schools, we're uh, doing healthcare, very large healthcare projects. So we're literally shaping the way people, uh, as you said, live, move, learn, and heal <laughs> in the cities of tomorrow. So you said earlier that at some point you needed to, I'm not sure if you said you had to reorganize, but things were getting, you were on a very aggressive path. Um, But at what point did IBI decide to go global, like to really branch out? Uh, was it was it during that period of time, or was it after you made all those acquisitions? It was a bit earlier. It was in 1996 where IBI Group launched its UK and Ireland transportation uh, and systems business, and uh, around the turn of the century we began to branch out. So 2004 we went public. So uh, that's when uh, so the UK and Ireland transportation and systems practice was kind of the first foray out. And then, uh, then started this uh, this uh, spate of acquisitions where we started to add complementary firms that were practicing in the fields of transportation, healthcare, education in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and then, after we became public in 2004, we further expanded into international markets. Uh, with uh, being awarded transportation and smart cities projects as far afield as India. Hmm. And uh, now we've got an ever-expanding transportation planning and toll systems practice in Latin America and in the Middle East. So what about the future? What, What does IBI's growth trajectory look like? Well, we're really excited about uh, growing our already significant U.S. footprint uh, by diversifying our service offering in traditional markets uh, where we already have a local presence. As an example, uh, last year we saw a surge in our mixed-use high-rise work along the U.S. West Coast. Uh, That's traditionally been an education and civic architecture practice for us. 
this diversification came about as a result of a very close collaboration between our U.S. West Coast offices and our Vancouver office. And we were able to bring down that mixed-use expertise mm. that resides in our Vancouver practice uh, along the West Coast uh, of the U.S. And now we're doing multiple uh, towers along the U.S. West Coast. Mm. Similarly, we're working closely with our U.S. East Coast offices uh, from Toronto, and we're seeing great results. Uh, we've we've uh, just started work on a large new uh, corporate campus in Michigan. Uh, we're doing master planning work in D.C., uh, a tower in Rhode Island, and we're doing uh, performing arts center work in Florida. Uh, we plan to build on this momentum okay. and uh, and really expand our footprint in higher education and student housing in the U.S. and Canada, actually, and and continue to expand our mixed-use work uh, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., uh, and then um, the very important role that placemaking uh, plays at the front end of these large mixed-use projects uh, is something that we support and promote uh, in all the markets that we operate in, and we see that growing uh, in the Middle East as well. What what is the some of the what are some of the biggest challenges to operating on such a global scale with so many different uh, avenues of work? Well, uh, you know, in the early days, as I explained, a big part of that growth was by acquisition. Uh, that's not been the case since 2012. We've uh, all our growth uh, in the last eight years has been organic. But uh, there are a multitude of challenges uh, associated with growth by acquisition and such rapid growth at that. Uh, I'd say the first one was creating the operational and corporate support to ensure that uh, we had an efficient and consistent operation as a firm, as a brand. Um, the second was creating a unified culture across uh, across the firm and a clear understanding of our approach to city building and all of the services that IBI has to offer in shaping the urban environment. Um, the third and very important was creating a collaborative environment mm -hmm. that was always drawing on the best minds associated with any opportunity based on their domain knowledge and not based on where they were located so that uh, we were always bringing our best team, our A game to any opportunity, no matter where it was in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say that uh, we've come a long way since those early days where we are actually able to operate in a much more integrated manner than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, is it, it must take a little bit of time for, especially for those companies that are being, including Page and Steel and, and others, when they're being brought into the IBI family, is there, is there a bit of a culture clash? Is there a bit of um, adaptation for everyone to kind of understand the, um, the, the new approach on, under this larger umbrella, umbrella? Is it, does it take a little bit of um, getting used to working in that, in that larger family? Well, uh, uh, you know, I, I think if you, if you take a step back and look at it, uh, you know, most firms that are, uh, uh, that are uh, merging or being acquired or, uh, or collaborating in one, any way, shape or form, 
uh, are going in knowing that inherently there is a synergy there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be a recognition of uh, what uh, what are the best aspects of of both practices and what each brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, that's kind of the the early days of the relationship. Uh, and obviously having been involved uh, in this kind of pivotal last decade of uh, reshaping IBI and its emergence as a global firm, uh, each of these acquired firms has been able to contribute to uh, to that sort of reshaping. I see. And so there is a, a, a kind of a mutual sense of of ownership, pride, participation in the growth and evolution of the firm. And I think that supersedes kind of individual culture issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're still obviously a Toronto-based company. Very much. Um, so how does that Toronto-based mindset uh, play a role in shaping the company's success when you're working abroad, when you're, when you're not necessarily here, but when you're doing projects uh, in other continents, for instance? You know, Toronto has been one of the most active and thriving cities in the world. From a migration, growth, and development perspective, in the last uh, couple of decades. Um, What that's provided us is a really unique opportunity to hone our craft and to build a very talented team uh, that have then carried this expertise to other parts of of the firm in many countries uh, across the globe. Now, uh, don't get me wrong, it's not, you know, it's all, not all about Toronto expertise because uh, as a global firm, uh, we've also learned a great deal from our colleagues in those offices in other parts of the, of the globe. And that expertise has in, in, in turn enabled us uh, to enter new markets in Canada. So you've gone global and you're continuing to glo- go global and you're relying on an expertise um, from both within and, f- and abroad. Um, so what are the lessons that you've learned by going global? We've mm-hmm. learned our lessons from going global. And the first one we've learned is that one size doesn't fit all. Okay. Uh, each market and culture is different. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to adapt our business model and our design approach uh, to suit the environments in which we operate. Uh, this requires a very high degree of agility and a willingness to adapt. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's really important. And secondly, it's important that all of our team members feel connected to the rest of the firm and are aware and involved in uh, in initiatives underway across the firm, no matter where they occur. Everything doesn't originate in in Toronto, and mm-hmm. and that's really important. And I think we in turn learn a lot from the new markets that we operate in, and we bring best practices from across the globe to inform our work in local markets. So if there are great lessons learned in Toronto, and we can bring them to new markets, uh, that's terrific. But but. Likewise, there are lessons we learn from our global practice mm-hmm. that we can bring back home. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about examples in both those scenarios. Um, let's talk about the first where you're going out. I'm really curious now to, to understand, to better understand some international 
projects, maybe one or two projects you'd like to cite that really uh, characterizes uh, IBI's global brand? Okay, well, I'll give you a couple of <laughs> couple of interesting examples. So a couple of years ago, I got a call from a Toronto client, uh, and uh, he inquired if we had a presence in the UK uh, because uh, they needed help with a project they were designing in Aberdeen in Scotland. And uh, we do have eight offices in the UK, including in Scotland. And uh, as luck would have it, I was actually traveling to Scotland the following week. My daughter was, uh, was doing a semester at St. Andrews and I was, uh, was visiting her. So I offered to visit the site. And before you knew it, uh, I was collaborating with our London office to design this beautiful residential project uh, in Aberdeen on the site of the old Rubislaw Quarry, where all of the granite for most of the buildings that are built in Aberdeen, which is a granite city, uh, came out of. And, uh, and uh, what we did there was quite striking uh, uh, with a form that, that was inspired by the three sisters uh, of Glencoe, which is uh, you know, a well-known mountain range mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in the Scottish Highlands. And uh, so Toronto relationship, experience with the residential work here, Toronto client, a remote site in Aberdeen. We had the international network. We were able to take it out there and, and do our work there, which was highly informed by the local context. Okay. So that, that's one example. Similarly, another, uh, another example where a few years prior to that, uh, our mixed-use experience and expertise uh, being quite well-known, we were invited uh, to join a very high-profile international team that was designing the Royal Atlantis uh, Hotel and Residences on the Palm Island in Dubai. Mm -hmm. And this is a very high-end, 2, um, uh, 2 million square feet uh, residential and hotel uh, project, very iconic. And uh, we were the executive architects, produced all the drawings here in Toronto uh, and the projects uh, currently under construction. We have three of our team members from Toronto permanently stationed there in Dubai on site. Uh, and it's, uh, it's expected to, uh, to open uh, at the end of this year. Hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, great examples of where we've able to export our Toronto-based uh, expertise in residential and mixed-use design mm -hmm. uh, to other uh, countries. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, bringing it the other way, um, and I, I spoke earlier about our, our technology kind of uh, focus. Um, we have increasingly turned to technology as, uh, as an enabler in terms of uh, the work we do, how we do it, and uh, how we help shape and build uh, the urban environment. Uh, we established an expertise in parametric design um, what, sorry, what is that? Para parametric, parametric or design. computational design, okay. uh, um, uh, which uh, we, we first forayed into in Los Angeles in our, in our uh, office there on the West Coast, uh, where our computational design leader, Jason King, resides. 
and uh, and frankly taught uh, parametric design at the university there locally. And uh, we brought that to our Toronto practice and discovered that we had uh, we had professionals here who were well versed in parametric design. And it's really about it's really a you know it is technology, it is software, uh, but it's about uh, the application and how you use it uh, in in new and innovative ways. So give me an example. I'm I'm having a hard time so, picturing uh, what we're it, what we're doing it. a tower at at the northeast corner of Queen and Mutual Street. Okay. Right in downtown Toronto, and and. Uh, uh, there is a particular limitation where you cannot. Uh, have um, incremental shadows on Moss Park, mm-hmm. and typically, you know, we we do a lot of experimentation. Uh, we would mass up the building. We'd do some sculpting. We'd run a shadow study. Uh, we'd discover some shadow somewhere along the way in some obscure hour. We'd have to go back, re-sculpt, trial and error, trial and error. Take days, take months. Uh, well, uh, we built the model parametrically where we set the criteria mm-hmm. that uh, we would create a form that does not create incremental shadows on the park at any hour of the day, any day of the year. Oh, interesting. And, and the software generated the form, which was very complex. And of course, we had to kind of rationalize it. Mm-hmm. But the genesis of the form was parametric. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was... Uh, you set the parameters of whatever you're trying to achieve. The next step in that in that model was, uh, as we were designing the facades, we could set the parameter that uh, we wanted, uh, you know, based on the green standard, 60% solid and 40% glass on the face of the building. We wanted no more than four... Uh, unique panels no panel could be more than four feet wide and uh, set those parameters which created this kind of s curve that we could infinitely manipulate always knowing that those parameters wouldn't be deviated from and create a bunch of iterations of the design and very quick optionality i see uh, that that enabled us to uh, to arrive at very informed design solutions. Interesting. So uh, similarly, our work in the Golden Mile that we've been doing for Starlight Developments. This is at Eglinton and... That's right, uh, yeah, yeah. Victoria Park. That's okay. correct, yeah. Uh, so we're seeing, a, a, again, a prof- proliferation of, of these development projects on large kind of big box retail sites. Uh, in anticipation of the LRT there. And, uh, and uh, we deployed parametric design to create these really unique building forms that, that depart from the traditional tower and podium typology or this, this kind of wedding cake, mid-rise built form that's, that's typifying residential architecture in Toronto. And, uh, and then the final example I can give you, uh, which, uh, which we applied most recently, I'm sure you've heard some of the press about a collaboration we've just done with Pharrell Williams. Oh, right, yeah. Um, well, for those who haven't, why don't you uh, give a, a summary of, of that? Well, I had a call from our, our, our client, Reserve Properties, saying that we were going to be collaborating on, on a residential condominium project in, uh, in the Young Eglinton area. Um, 
with Pharrell Williams, the musician, uh, which sounded very exciting initially, but then we had to very quickly think about, you know, what does a collaboration with a musician look like? So uh, I actually dug right into my roots and went back to this concept in Indian music that's called a jugalbandi. And a jugalbandi is uh, really uh, the idea of two musicians um, kind of collaborating or responding to each other to perform uh, the same notes using their own instruments. You know, so it's almost like a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, wonder what a jugalbandi between music and architecture would look like. Mm -hmm. So we thought um, we would uh, parametrically abstract the waveforms of Pharrell's hit song, The Gust of Wind, to create these patterns uh, that would inform the architectural expression of the building. So nothing to do with uh, constraints by the, the surrounding environment, like shadow impacts or urban design, but really designed by... Uh, the, 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 the wavelengths generated from his type of music. Well, that informed the expression. Those constraints of built form that you referred to, they had to be, uh, they had, we had to conform to sure. them. They had been established, we had to conform. So it was working within those parameters, <laughs> never kind of stepping out of those bounds, mm -hmm. but then adding this additional layer uh, which created this very interesting, and that was just the genesis of the collaboration. And uh, it went much further and much deeper, and a lot has been written about it lately, which, you know, we, we could spend the next hour talking about. But, uh, uh, but I just wanted to highlight how uh, we have turned to the technology uh, and, and found creative ways of using it. This technology wasn't designed to create collaborations mm -hmm. between musicians and architects. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just uh, our creative way of adapting the technology. Uh, A technology that was developed by one of your staff members in California. Uh, well, the software exists. Okay. But the uh, uh, creating the adaptation, and I'd say that the, the way in which we're using it is actually quite unique and very, very creative. I've given you a few architectural examples. We're using it in urban design. We're using it in transportation and planning in many, many uh, of, the, of the areas that we practice in. I want to get towards the end of this podcast discussion. Uh, we're talking about buildings in the city. And the city is... Uh, becoming really a global city, and it, it has been probably for the last decade, but really it's hit that threshold. Incredibly diverse. Uh, as you know, there are more cranes uh, here than anywhere else in North America. No signs of slowing down. So when you cast your eye across all the newer buildings that have gone up, say, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, how would you rate their look and quality compared to what you see in other other global cities? Uh uh, well, I think it's it's evolved. Uh, I would say that uh, the architecture, uh, uh, Toronto's architecture in 2020, <laughs> looks vastly different than it did in the 1990s when I when I first got here. Uh, and I think that uh, we are beginning to see a great deal of diversity in our architectural 
uh, expression of our newer buildings. And I think that's driven by a multitude of factors. Uh, there's global influences, the proliferation of technology. Uh, you know, there's access to information from all over the world. Uh, there's been changes to our building standards and an increased kind of emphasis on sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been innovations with new building materials. Um, and um, I would say that we've also seen uh, architects from around the world landing on our shores. And and uh, to they, work or to observe, I think to work, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of international architects in Toronto uh, lately, a lot more than we did in the early days. And uh, I actually welcome this because I think it it's creating a, a kind of rich and diverse tapestry mm -hmm. of architectural expression. And it's challenging local firms to up their game, mm -hmm. you know, and and creating this kind of. Uh, this uh, this um, this desire to raise the bar on the quality of the work that's being uh, produced locally, and I think it's showing. I think the results are evident. Mm -hmm. uh, I think our our buildings are uh, uh, not only getting bigger and taller, and you know, but but uh, they're getting more sophisticated. Uh, you know, I'll tell you an interesting story. I was in. Uh, uh, I was in a meeting with a very high-profile developer in New York uh, who's doing some of the tallest uh, buildings there. And uh, we were doing our introductions, and he was very quickly going around the room, not, you know, frankly, too interested until he landed on me and learned that I was from Toronto. And that really piqued his interest. He kind of looked up and said, hmm, Toronto, tell me about Toronto. And I said, what would you like to know? He said, well, what are the latest trends in residential architecture in Toronto? What's working? What's not working? What are the new innovations that you folks have undertaken? And I found that really interesting to be sitting in New York with this high-profile developer who's doing these really significant projects, and what he was most interested in was Toronto's development scene. Why is that? Uh, I think because we've uh, uh, we've announced ourselves really well on the world stage, and and I think the kind of growth, the kind of development, the kind of uh, evolution of Toronto's architecture, of our downtown, of the South Core, as we spoke about earlier, uh, has really uh, attracted a lot of attention. Uh, can we do better? Of course we can, uh, and and that's what keeps it exciting. But what about um, some of the, I mean, there will always be critics out there. I mean, that's just the nature of, of the beast. But uh, people would say, just, you know, here comes another glass tower, another glass tower. We're seeing the same thing coming up time and time again and at every downtown or midtown corner. Are these, uh, the, the, the towers that we're seeing, is that is that a Toronto look? Or is that a look that is replicated from every major uh, metropolis around the world. I think we saw a lot of that in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I think, uh, you know, I think what we're looking at and what we are evaluating is a moment in the life of a city. Uh, 10 years or 15 years in the life of a city is a short time span. Mm -hmm. And yes, this will be the era of the glass towers. But let me tell you, that era is fast coming to an end. 
We have new green standards. I spoke about sustainability earlier. I spoke about 60% solid and 40% glass. Mm -hmm. I think the look of our towers in the city is going to change very rapidly. And there are a lot more towers coming. And I think that when we look back at the end of this all, maybe, I don't know, 50 years from now, if a few of us are fortunate to still be on the planet at that point, uh, it will look very different than mm -hmm. it does today. And I think, uh, I think uh, what we are responding to is an era of glass towers that is, that is fast passing us by. Mm -hmm. And I think that mix, that richness, that diversity that I was talking about is going to, uh, is going to be what endures as, as you know, the, change, the change occurs. So as Toronto increasingly uh, exerts its presence as a global city, uh, what are you most excited about um, when you're looking at Toronto and, and its future? Well, uh, you know, I'll tell you with urbanization globally, this is a very special and a crucial time uh, uh, in the growth of cities worldwide. And uh, due to the incredible volume of development underway in our city, we're in a very unique position to bring thought leadership uh, around some key urban issues that are relevant globally um, to the world stage. And I, I, I find that exciting, the fact that we can be at the forefront of it because uh, we have so much hands-on experience in the last, uh, in the last of 20 years. And, and you know, this includes a, a multitude of issues. This includes a response to the climate crisis, to affordability, to responsible development, to the role of technology in the evolution of our cities. Uh, here at IBI, we are preoccupied and we really believe that technology is profoundly impacting the manner in which our cities are conceived, uh, in which they are constructed and in which they operate. Mm -hmm. and, and I find that really exciting. So you're clearly very optimistic for all the reasons you explained. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily want to end this podcast on a, on a negative note, but we are getting to the end. Um, what are you most worried about for our city? Uh, I'll tell you what I'm most worried about. Toronto's population uh, is slated to grow to 8 million by 2030 uh, and 10 million by 2045. That's an additional 3 million people in our city in the next 25 years and a million more people in the next 10 years. Are we well-placed to deal with this level of growth? Uh, do we have the infrastructure, the transit, um, the housing, the institutions to support this growth? If the last uh, 25 years have, uh, have taught us anything, they, they have demonstrated what it takes to deal with this kind of growth. And I think we're going to have to ramp it up big time for the next 25 years. While this is a challenge and it worries uh, me, I also see it as an enormous opportunity. And I hope that our industry recognizes that we're not going to get there by doing things the same way we've done them for the last 25 years. So what does it take? Does it take leadership by uh, industry? Does it take leadership by government? Um, where do you, where, like who, who has the ball? Where does, who has the, the lead in, in all of this? I think there's a need for 
much closer collaboration between all of the stakeholders in the planning and design stages um, to ensure that we're collectively keeping up with this explosive growth. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the regulatory framework has, has gotten increasingly challenging as we strive to address many of our city's challenges through the de development process. So as professionals, we need to continually innovate uh, with new design solutions to address complex social, environmental, and economic challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that's actually what keeps this process so interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a lot to take in. And, you know, this, this is a kind of theme that I think a lot of people in our industry are um, wrestling with or, and recognize the opportunity, but how do you, how do you uh, make it happen? Um, and I think you've hit upon a lot of interesting points. This has been really interesting to hear a lot about um, IBI, your global sphere of influ influence. Um, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to learn more about your work and IBI's work at the uh, ULI Spring Meeting coming up in, in, uh, in May. So thanks again for your time. Thank you very much for, uh, for this uh, opportunity, and I am looking forward to welcoming uh, the global development community to Toronto.